We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. What's up, everyone? We are finally back here on Perpetual Chess, and my guest this week is international master and YouTube uh, streamer and chess instructor, young Israeli inter- I am Asaf Givon. Asaf, thank you for joining us. Yes, Ben, thank you, too. It's actually a pleasure uh, to be here. Yeah, so you're an up-and-coming YouTuber. We had some um, fans of yours reach out and suggest that you would be a good guest, and I know that you're a highly reviewed coach on Lee Chess. Uh, so we'll get to all that stuff, but Asaf, I got to talk about the candidates a little bit. We're recording this on Wednesday, the 21st, and I believe we're actually going to come out with this tomorrow. So I don't want to go too deep on this tournament because I think not everyone listens to this podcast the day it comes out, and there'll be plenty of time to analyze that everything everything that's happened. But I right. was just curious like, what you've had a chance to check out from it in terms of the games or the storylines and stuff like that. Yeah, actually, I think in general, um, that's something I've already said uh, kind of to a couple of people who who asked me. I, I, in general, am very excited each year when the candidates, okay, every two years, sorry, so when the candidates start, because I always consider the candidates to be an even more interesting tournament than the actual uh, World Championship match, um, because you, it, this tournament's kind of... Um, the players just have has to win many games in order to qualify. So they really they're taking much much more risks. They kind of uh, they play at their pick, kind of. That's the way I see it. So yeah, I definitely uh, seeing uh, the games and uh, catching up with the commentary and the game analysis and press conferences. Yes. Yeah, it's so much fun to watch. And we were talking a little bit before we started recording our interview. One person in particular who's made some headlines in terms of really pushing for the win is uh, legendary legendary former world champion Vladimir Kramnik. Um, And we were discussing, so he's been pushing really hard to win his games, which, like you say, makes sense in a sort of winner-take-all format. But it seems like he's even pushing to win the post-mortem in terms of when they go over the games afterward. And I've seen a lot of discussion online about that. And you were saying that as a longtime fan of his, um, this was not unusual. So for those who may not have watched uh, Mr. Kramnik's press conferences as much, could you elaborate a little bit on that? Uh, Yeah, so... um Basically, um, well, I, I kind of watched many uh, kind of press conferences that uh, Vladimir Kramnik did over the years. I'm, I think he's a great chess player, and watching his commentary and game analysis after the game is really enlightening to kind of see the, a player in this caliber, um, his ideas, his analyses. And I've, I'm kind of... Um, I, I always... Uh, notice that he has this tendency to to maybe overestimate or, or just being very optimistic about uh, the evaluation of his own position, which is, 
I think understandable. I think uh, many players, in, maybe in this uh, on these levels, they are so strong that they uh, they always feel like maybe not all of them, but many of them feel like their position is always better or, or their understanding is better than the opponents. And uh, yeah, basically Kramnik uh, is doing just this in the candidates. And to me, it's not such a big surprise uh, because I'm, I've seen it quite a lot. But I guess for many people, uh, because they, maybe this is the first time they have they get to see uh, those press conferences, so uh, it's kind of con- coming by surprise for them. But I, I can I can really um, understand where this is coming from. Okay. Yeah, so a, a little bit of more background for people who are expressing shock, and I haven't, <laughs> I haven't gotten to watch that many of his press conferences, so it's something I, I'd like to check out and get a little more context on myself. But it's interesting. I mean, I think a lot of chess players at the lower levels are very prone to overestimating their position, myself included. But it's interesting that even at the elite level, where so many of your games end in draws, and it's kind of, it's important for the competitive. Uh, it's important competitively to be able to objectively evaluate your position so that you know when to take a draw, when to offer a draw, and stuff like that. But I guess if you're just one of the best in the world, maybe you can get around that just by playing better moves, to paraphrase Fisher. Yeah, you know, I actually, I, I think it's also interesting to compare, for example, players we, who grew up, let's say, pre-engine uh, area, uh, like Kramnik, for example, when he grew up as a chess player, they didn't have still very strong engines. And to compare him, for example, with a player of modern era like uh, Caruana or uh, Wesley So and Karyakin and so on, and to see, like, uh, to compare they, let's say, uh, um, op- optimate, what's the word for that? Like, how optimistic they are about their evaluations, because maybe for players who grew up with engines, they are less confident about their evaluations because they always know that uh, the engine might find a better move. But maybe for a player like Kramnik, who got is kind of maybe in his head, he's kind of used to being right and being the strongest player. So maybe the you know the the engines have less impact on his evaluations in his let's say in his, in his intuition. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm. I grew up in the pre-computer age, and I remember that chess players, even ones who are not elite GMs, maybe especially ones who are not elite GMs, they could argue about a position for days. You know, right. like if you have some position and it's complicated and you don't know what's happening, you could just go down a rabbit hole and be looking at different lines for days, and people might have different opinions. Whereas now, it's kind of a lost art because if you want to know the answer, similar to Wikipedia, looking up an answer to a trivia question or something like that, if you want to know the answer in chess, you can just plug it in and you'll find out in a few minutes. At, at the most yeah it's actually funny many times uh, for example after after i for example after, after i finished uh, a game for example a very high profile game in some uh, chess league or chess tournament many times right after the game some amateur players came to me and said oh Asaf, do you know you had some winning move there and you had some winning move there and it's very funny because I, i'm the one who kind of supposed to be the one who explaining things to them but they see everything, you know, with the engine online or something, and they're just very confidently saying, "Yeah, you went wrong there, and you went wrong there." It's kind of a kind of funny situation. Yeah, it is funny. I don't know if you happen to come across this, but uh, Sagar Shah from Chessbase India has been interviewing uh, Vishy Anand's wife, and it's it's really interesting interview. You guys should check it out. Uh, all, all listeners should take a look at it online if you, if you haven't yet, but. She talks a lot about she's his manager, so she talks about organizing his schedule and planning uh, his trips, but also sort of just helping be the emotional support that an elite player needs. And uh, in it, she quotes her husband saying, when he plays a game, he after he's done with a game, he wants to hear anything from me except for what the engine said. He doesn't want to hear me say, like, why didn't you play this move because of the engine? Because it's a little unfair that she's just relaxing on the couch, you know, seeing what the best move is, and he's there in the trenches. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know exactly what he means. Uh, I seen, I've seen also, um, for example... Uh, as a, as a let's say as a growing chess player, many times we would um, we would go to some chess tournament around the world, 
and we were all together like in the hotel or whatever and, and many times for example the parents of these players uh, not specifically mine by the way mine never did it but i always seen some conversation about parents being <laughs> very mad about their children and the parents don't even necessarily know chess or maybe know a little of chess and right. they say oh come on how could you miss that move <laughs> right. how could yeah, you do exactly. this you know i'm paying for all, all of your chess uh, chess tournaments and you cannot even see this move <laughs> like it was it was kind of it's it's very funny to see and and kind of sad at the same time yes. yeah well said i think any chess chess educator can relate to that experience so i saw for for our listeners who aren't familiar with you so you're a 23 year old israeli almost 2500 elo could you tell us a little bit more about your background how you got into chess and all that stuff uh, yes, of course. So um, basically, I, I started playing uh, chess when I was, I think, about six or seven years old. I was at first grade. Also, my um, my parents. Uh, I was born uh, in Israel, but my parents are um, originated from a Soviet Union. So when they heard that I'm kind of interested in chess, which, by the way, a common uh, mistake that people kind of uh, think that. I, my kind of uh, that my parents, let's say, uh, brought me to play chess, which is not true. I, I kind of went to some chess after school activity, and I kind of got into it. And when they heard that I'm interested, they were all like, "Oh, great! I mean, if you're interested in chess, we are very happy to support it." And ever since, they kind of uh, have been um, very much uh, supportive of me. And um, I am. Um, so uh, I've won a couple of um, Israeli national championships uh, in the youth category, under 14, after 16, uh, under 20. And um, and they also represented Israel in a couple of uh, world and European championships. And I think my the, maybe uh, probably the peak of uh, my career is uh, the fact that I've won the, the Open uh, Championship of uh, the Israeli Championship, like for uh, adults. And also um, probably um, winning, um, uh, okay, I won some tournaments, but um, obviously uh, this is the, the tournament which kind of sounds, uh, for for example, for a non-chess player, when I say that I've won the Israeli championship, it sounds much better than saying, you know, I've won a, a grandmaster uh, round-robin tournament, right? They have right. no idea what I'm, what I'm talking about. So Yeah, of uh, course. Yeah. Yeah, even yeah, if you so. said you won like Aeroflot or something like that, then no, people outside of chess wouldn't know how impressive that is. But obviously saying that you won uh, the Israeli Open. So did that mean that you were a national champion at that point? Yeah, well, um, in Israel we have the Open Championship of Israel and the Close uh, Championship, which is slightly more, uh, let's say, um, like a, the, the stronger tournament is the Close Tournament because you only get there... Uh, you know, by by being above a certain rating or by, uh, you know, winning some tournaments. Uh, but uh, in, in, in that year, there was no close championship. So officially, I was kind of Israeli champion, yes. Okay, yeah, I was looking online. I was researching chess in Israel a little bit, and I, it seemed like some years there was no Israeli closed and other years there were. So that was one of the things I wanted to clarify with you. Yeah, so it's it kind of, it, it's being held every two years, but you know, as as every chess federation, sometimes there are probably issues with, uh, you know, some um, money raising issues or um, this kind of thing. So uh, I guess in some years this championship didn't happen from some uh, some finance uh, reasons or political reasons. I'm not even sure myself. Okay. Yeah, and I was checking out the top 25 players uh, in FIDE rating from Israel and. I was pretty surprised. I mean, I saw your rating first, but then to see that you're 25th. Obviously, Israel has a rich chess history, but still, that is super strong for the population that Israel has, how many strong players are in the country. So are there a lot of opportunities to compete in a, a strong chess community there? Well, I wouldn't say... I mean, there is definitely a lot of uh, chess players and a lot of interest in chess. Uh, I wouldn't say Israel is like particularly uh, let's say good uh, place to compete because there aren't too many uh, let's say open tournaments in Israel uh, actually al almost zero we may we have some 
uh, round robin uh, grandmaster international master tournaments uh, and all, all kinds of different open tournaments but you know we don't have for example um, almost never we have the kind of tournaments they have for example uh, in Europe or in the United States like big opens you know like you mentioned Aeroflot or this kind or this kind of tournaments in the US almost never uh, but uh, what we do have uh, in Israel is uh, a very big uh, percentage of the population uh, originated from Soviet Union, like uh, like couple, maybe two million people by this point, out of uh, seven million people, I think, uh, in Israel total. So uh, I think this really gave chess a very big kind of, um, let's say... Um, very big place of interest in the Israeli culture. That's my belief. That makes sense. And do you feel like it's going to trickle down to the next generation? You mentioned that you found chess through an after-school program. Do you feel like there's a, like kids, uh, the younger generation is is maintaining the interest that's been brought from the Soviet Union? Uh, yes. So I, I actually think that now more than ever, Chess is gaining popularity in the, let's say, in the lower um, levels of this game. So I think as years progress, is actually becoming um, more, let's say, difficult or tricky to live as a chess professional. So let's say purely from a professional or a, a elitist uh, point of view, I think chess... Um, is uh, might be in some kind of uh, let's say um, downhill if we compare it, for example, to the 60s or the 70s or the 80s, where chess was like in the golden era, right? Uh, but if we look at just purely pop in the, the popularity of the game, let's say in the in the wide range of people in all classes, and um, I think chess is having a huge uh, popularity these days. Once again, I, I can say this about Israel. I see that in many schools, in many after-school programs, there are a lot of uh, chess-related activities, and um, I think it's great, actually. Yeah, that's certainly the case in the United States, as regular listeners to this podcast have heard us talk about a lot, but I'm glad to hear that it, that that's the case in, in Israel as well. And as for your playing, so you mentioned you're a chess professional, mainly a chess trainer. As for your playing, am I correct that you have one GM norm to go to, to reach Grandmaster status? Uh, yes, that's true. Okay. And do you get a chance to travel much to play or are you pretty much focused on teaching and staying at home right now? Uh, so mm, I've... I've definitely am playing uh, less tournaments uh, than I was, for example, two three years ago when I was uh, actually in the Israeli army. Uh, in Israel, the, the army is kind of mandatory, so uh, I. But I had a status of uh, like an active sportsman, they mm -hmm. call it, and uh, and the army kind of gives this kind of sportsman the the option of playing tournaments and training. And during this time, I had more chance of traveling around. But uh, since I was uh, kind of released off duty, um, um, so um, I, I I had a lot of um, uh, kind of being very busy at work with students and with uh, lectures and all kinds of chess-related activities. Okay, and also, of course, uh, you know how it is. Uh, I have a, a, a girlfriend for a couple of years, and... She doesn't like too much the idea of me disappearing for like two weeks or something. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So basically, it's it's slightly more tricky to 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 play tournaments right now. But I I still do play like two three tournaments a year, including the Israeli league. So yeah, I'm still an active chess player, definitely. Okay. And are you feeling like you really need to get the GM title, or just like if it happens, it happens? Yeah. So. Uh, I really don't feel under pressure to achieve it uh, because I I feel like the pressure is kind of um, is is doing like say negative influence on me personally. Maybe for some people, the pressure to achieve uh, some goals gives them some kind of a drive to uh, to achieve them. But for me, it's kind of working the other way around. And I, I actually feel like ever since I kind of. Mm, 
is I'm less stressed about achieving this uh, title. I'm even playing better in a way. So if it happens, it happens. If not, it's also okay. So I'm kind of going with it. Yeah. Yeah, that seems like a a good perspective to have. Not it can be it can stress you out. I'm sure if you just obsess about it, and it, you know it probably obviously you're so close so that that part has to be a little bit enticing but it doesn't probably doesn't impact your daily life very much whether you're a grandmaster or international master yeah this is true it's it's mainly about uh, at this point for me i of course i really really do want to achieve the grandmaster norm but it's it's really more about uh, you know this feeling of um uh, completion can you say this complacency yeah complacency sorry Uh, uh, i was just gonna say your english is great that's a that's a good word for a non-native english speaker well uh, thank you so um it it just it's a good feeling and it's 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 very satisfying and um but i mean it doesn't as you said it it will not like affect my life to to a huge uh, degree let's say yes yeah, that makes sense. And I guess what does affect your life to a huge degree is your teaching. So you're very highly reviewed on Lee Chess. I checked out a couple of your YouTube videos and I really enjoyed them. So do you have a, do you feel like you have an overall teaching philosophy? How do you help people get better at chess? Well, um, well, first of all, I, I, um, I kind of, um, I, uh, I felt like, um, Let's say when I started teaching a couple of like like years ago, I don't even remember exactly when, but I, I kind of noticed that um, it's 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 very difficult to um, let's say set a very let's say fixed training methods for any chess player because I've seen so many different chess personalities and different chess uh, problems that people have. So basically what I've tried uh, to do as a coach a lot of times is to completely adapt to the student and kind of uh, be able to uh, help him in what he needs and also explain things to him in the way that he understands. Uh, Because, for example, when I was uh, younger and I was being taught chess by actually various trainers... Most of them, by the way, were obviously uh, ex-Soviet Union players or teachers. Sometimes they were using, for example, chess terms or chess words, which were very difficult for me to understand exactly what they tried to say. So uh, my approach was always to try to speak in a very understandable language, let's say, for the average person who is um, not necessarily, you know, um, uh, having a huge let's say, knowledge about chess and so on. And um, this is really, let's say, the core of my approach for coaching. Okay. Um, so you, you look at games and basically evaluate what, what you think is best for them, or do you just have them tell you like uh, what they need to work on? Well, uh, a little of both, but mainly um, I, I would say that... Um, I, I let's say I evaluate higher, let's say my opinion over theirs. As um, you, yeah, as you should. <laughs> yes, because n- not always people know what's best for them, and and this is why uh, it's very important for me, as you said, to go through the games and kind of we kind of do it together during our lessons. So we say, oh, you see here, we have a let's say a very. Um, frequent type of mistake that you do or a very frequent uh, I don't know uh, blunders that you make so we kind of try to make conclusions about which areas of the game are more uh, um, urgent or important to improve at this point and we kind of uh, uh, adjust accordingly okay that makes sense yeah and sounds like a, a good approach and I know that uh, it's it's resonated with people so I think part of the way that you have found students is through YouTube. So how did you get started streaming on YouTube? Um, so actually, a um, couple of uh, years ago, um, my friend uh, from Israel, uh, Grandmaster uh, uh, Tal Baron, uh, he started um, his own kind of chess YouTube um, 
channel and um, when he started doing this I, I I've seen that uh, people are kind of uh, reacting uh, very well and giving him a lot of uh, kind of good comments about uh, kind of the the um, how good it is for them is that they have a, like a grandmaster who talks about the game and so on and it, it kind of um, it kind of and I actually myself I'm a bit of a I would say a little shy person, so for me to, at first, the idea of making my own YouTube channel sounded a bit like a difficult task, you know, kind of speaking to an audience and so on. But one of the good things in in YouTube, as I see it, is that, um, I mean, you you record your own videos and uh, you can can choose uh, which one to... uh, you upload and which one to not upload and you have kind of a freedom of uh, you can say what you want and uh, express your feelings and I, I kind of got into it I, 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 I tried it for once or twice and I I saw it was very fun for me doing because I very much like teaching and explaining and and at some point it just escalated um, so now uh, my, my channel is slightly bigger than it was initially yeah, well, if you you know if you do a good job, you'll find an audience sooner or later. So yes. I know I know that you speak a few languages, Asaf. Have you done any streaming in Israeli? And you speak Russian too, right? Uh, right. So um, I've I, I really tried uh, initially to um, to uh, do some videos also in Hebrew. Uh, right. Excuse me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I also speak Russian, by the way. Yeah, and. Um, but the, the the only problem really with with Hebrew is the just the the low amount of uh, audience and people who speak this language throughout the world like at best maybe fifteen uh, million people like of course it's incompa- incomparable with English or even Russian uh, so at some point um, I just um, I, I just uh, you know understood that uh, in order to have some you know bigger audience and to be able to speak to more people, I'll, I'll have to do it in English probably, and also it kind of helped me to improve my English a bit. So I think uh, if uh, if to watch maybe some of my earlier videos, maybe my English was worse and maybe now it's better. So I'm kind of seeing it as a good uh, uh, experience for me. That makes sense. And are a lot. I know you have a lot of students from all over the world. So are most of your lessons done in English? Yes, maybe ninety percent. Okay, occasionally I'll have an English a, a lesson in Russian, and 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 most of my Hebrew speaking students are kind of obviously resident in Israel. And Israel is a kind of a small country, so if if you want to have a coach, usually you would uh, just meet with him. It's kind of rare to have uh, lesson sessions uh, on Skype, but I do some of these also. But yeah, the, the majority are in English. Okay, and do you do any like um, uh, lectures or regular classes out in the world in Israel, or is it just mostly online stuff, other than the occasional one-on-one lesson in person? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely um, do lectures, and this uh, sometimes I'll do uh, simultaneous uh, exhibition games in Israel. Um, as I said, chess is gaining a lot of uh, popularity, and actually, I'm each uh, every time I'm surprised. So when you take a lot of people who are not related to chess, and you put and uh, you and you uh, and you let them watch a uh, chess simultaneous exhibition, I'm always surprised by how. Like how amazed they are by wow! How can he play so many people at the same time? It's so amazing. How can he remember all of the positions? And you know, um, for a, for a, for a chess player to make a, a simultaneous exhibition, you know, if the opponents are not so strong, right? It's actually quite easy, right? I right, mean, you just yeah. you just play the first move which pops to mind, and usually it's enough to beat ninety five percent of the players, right? Uh, it's not such a big deal for us, but for the crowd, it's amazing. So uh, as a promotional tool, I've always, I mean, in order to make people interested in chess, I've always 
thought that the simultaneous exhibition is a great idea, actually. Yeah, it seems like it impresses people just as much as Blindfold, when to me, I can play, you know, I'm 2170 Fide, I can play may- one, maybe two games Blindfold, and I'm pretty weak when I do it. So someone like Timor Gudeyev, who can play a million games, and we had GM Elshan Moriarty-Body, who said he plays 10 Blindfold games. To me, that's staggering. But the actual Simo, I'm just like, whatever. <laughs> you know, Anyone can do I that, know, basically. Right? I mean, within reason. But yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. And I know that we have a lot of chess educators and promoters who listen. So just to give a, a quick uh, free bit of advice, I have a friend in Pittsburgh, Gabe Pettish, who uh, about 2,400 USCF. And he actually drummed up business just by going to local libraries and offering to do simuls. So he um, he just offers to do simuls, puts up the flyers, signs up people, and a bunch of kids who maybe like know how to play chess but aren't that interested sign up. And then even though he doesn't make any money, he does this for free, uh, suddenly you've got uh, a whole influx of new potential students who might contact him about lessons or might be interested in taking classes as a follow-up. So... Yeah, Simos definitely, they, they attract new people to chess, so they're a good thing to incorporate. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we have a question from a supporter of the podcast, uh, people who donate to the podcast through Patreon or PayPal, as regular listeners know. Find out the guests in advance and can submit questions. So Sanat Singhai asks you, uh, what's some bad chess advice that you hear thrown, a lot, thrown around a lot, and who trained or influenced you? Uh, yeah, sorry. So just to be sure I understand the question. So the so, first one is what yes. bad... So we'll, we'll take them one at a time. Yeah, what is some bad chess advice that you hear thrown around a lot? Wow, that's that's an interesting question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's one of those on-the-spot questions. You know, I probably should have given you a heads up, but I'm sure that if you think about it, um, you can come up with something. Do you want to hear the other question first? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's, so let's the next the one is... Who trained you or influenced you? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned earlier, so I had a couple of uh, chess coaches, th- chess coaches throughout the years, and actually, I think there is something good, very positive about having a couple of coaches over the years because it kind of gives you a different perspective of you know many different uh, chess players. There vision of the game, their approach and actually I, I feel like the fact that I didn't have like one particular coach um, um, but many of them kind of helped me to understand the game better um, but to name some some of the more influential ones on, um, let's say I would say on, on my game are uh, Grandmasters Konstantin uh, Lerner, which actually passed away a couple of years ago and um, and Grandmaster Alon Greenfield uh, from Israel uh, these two like I, I feel purely if, if we speak about the influence on my game as I see today I, I kind of see a reflection of them let's say uh, so, um, so what the- did they teach you like what did, um, were they positional players tactical players was it about approach what what did uh, what lessons did you learn from them well, a little bit of everything. So just seeing, for example, they're both of them very much different in their approach. Lerner was uh, from Ukraine. He was a very classical, uh, let's say, classic coach for the Soviet Union time. He was one of the seconds of Anatoly Karpov during his match with Kar- uh, with uh, Kasparov. So he had a, a huge knowledge of chess openings and chess theory. So uh, this he helped me a lot in this area of the game in understanding some you know classical idea of classical ideas of chess. And uh, with Alon Greenfield, uh, this was more about understanding uh, chess dynamics, you know, feeling the right moment to strike, uh, f- you know, just knowing uh, the true value of pieces, these kind of things, which I feel like today I'm, I, I feel like I have a relatively good understanding on in is is kind of influenced mainly by him um so this is really uh the reasons i kind of these two names uh, came up uh, to my head okay and what about historical figures do you have a favorite chess player of all time or someone whose games you enjoyed the most yes actually i have a very good answer for this i i would say that uh the most influential player 
or and at the same time my favorite player on my style is is definitely uh, Gary Kasparov. Nice. Uh, I I really like uh, his games, his dynamic style. Um, I think he really he brought chess one step forward. Kind of his opening preparation, his um, his ideas. You know, the idea, some positional sacrifices which uh, he showed and he played. And people were pretty much overwhelmed by him. I think this is one of the reasons why 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 he was. Maybe if we take all all world champions, he was maybe one of the most, let's say, uh, kind of the ones who had a very big gap between him and the second one after him. Yeah. Okay, we we see a similar thing today with Carlson, but maybe he was one of the the first ones who who was like, who had a very big gap uh, um, after uh, the the runner-up after him. Yeah. So... And yeah. and uh, Karpov's games, you know, his probably second in command through most of uh, Kasparov's peak. Karpov's games are fun in their own right, in a different way. But yeah, Kasparov, I just felt like his games were more vibrant. You know, they just uh, so much dynamism in in all of the games. So I, I'm with you. I'm a big fan of his chess as well. Uh, so speaking yeah. speaking of Magnus, before we get back to the other half of this question, uh, yeah. so again, I'm going to be talking with my guests about the upcoming World Championship once the candidates is over, but I do feel like we have a decent, with five rounds to go, uh, I would say, you know, Fabiano is probably about 55% to win and uh, Mamad Yarov is probably 25% just off the top of my head and yeah. everyone else is below that. So do you think Fabiano or Mamad Yarov would have a decent chance of dethroning Magnus? Well, I'll tell you what, Ben. I think that from pure chess point of view, there is still, I think, no doubt that Carlsen is is kind of the dominant uh, player in every match, like in against every player that he will play against. Uh, but I think that's because Magnus has achieved already so much in his life, being the world champion for a couple of times in a row and being the first, um, being the first on the rating. So we, we, in the last couple of years, we're seeing a bit of a drop in his maybe motivation, perhaps. So I think that th- there is um, there is some chance uh, for a player, for example, like uh, Caruana, who is very well prepared in the opening and. Um, so I do think there is a chance that uh, the, we will have an interesting match with the, like, let's say, with the underdog player winning, definitely. Yeah, that would be good. And and I have to admit, I kind of discounted Caruana leading up to this just because he hadn't been in peak form. But if he does win, I'll be super excited. I really was. I really wanted him to to face Magnus uh, in the last championship when Karyakin narrowly beat him. So it would be kind of an unfinished business aspect to Caruana playing him. And it would be great for chess to have two young, well-spoken, uh, you know, great representatives of chess facing off in London. Yes, I also think it's it, it's kind of, you know, Caruana versus Carlsen is, is maybe, in a way, it, it's kind of a battle of kind of the same generation but completely different approaches of chess because Carlsen is the more kind of intuitive player playing with his um, feeling many times not being so much prepared in the opening but outplaying his opponent in the second part of the game. Caruana being the more calculated one, the more uh, opening orientated like a player and uh, it's kind of it would be very interesting to see this clash of uh, let's say chess uh, approaches in this kind of match. Yeah, it would be great. So, and Mamad Yarov would be interesting too. Uh, kind Definitely. of a kind of a different matchup. But anyway, we'll know soon enough. <laughs> like one, <laughs> one one more week, and this question will be resolved. So, um, yes. So one thing, another thing, I like to do with all of my guests, Asaf, is get uh, book or chess improvement recommendations. So we talked a little about what you do with your students, but. What about generally, if someone's self-motivated or maybe can't afford to get lessons from someone, uh, how should they spend their time? Let's say you have five hours a week to get better at chess. First of all, if there's any books that stand out to you uh, that that players should read or just generally how you think people should approach chess improvement. Yeah, so, yeah great. So actually, I did uh, prepare an answer for this because um, I, I kind of... Uh, 
I kind of uh, I, I knew uh, this a uh, very frequent uh, question uh, in uh, those uh, podcasts. Uh, so, um, so of course, uh, you know, book recommendations are very much um, um, kind of it's related to the um, let's say the the, the, the level the, the starting point of the player, obviously. Uh, if a player wants to improve from being a complete beginner to uh, to a let's say to a 2000 rating, it's a bit different from improving for for example from 2200 to 2500, right? Right. So um, for for I would say that for complete beginners or people who maybe not complete beginners but know something about chess but feel like they don't understand chess let's say in terms of strategy or general let's say principles i think a very good starting point and uh, correct me if i'm wrong ben probably it's a very uh, maybe a bit of a generic uh, uh, choice by me but i really uh, evaluate uh, the the book and uh, my system of uh, of Nimsovich very highly in this sense it's a little uh, bit it's a little bit controversial here i would say probably uh, when it comes up Three out of four guests speak highly of it, but a few have just said it's outdated and boring. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's the thing. I think if you take this book purely from scientific point of view, it might have obviously some mistakes. But if a player just wants to, let's say, to learn very basic stuff about uh, chess uh, terms like, I don't know, a blockade, an outpost, what is it, how to fight against isolated pawn and so on, all of these basic things, I think it's a good starting point. I, I, I wouldn't be maybe recommending this book for an for already very far advanced player, but let's say as, as a starting point, I, um, I really believe kind of in this book. Yeah, and if nothing else, it's it's such a classic that you should read it and form your own opinion. You know, like if yes. you, if you pick it up and it's boring you, it's okay to put it down, but at least check it out on your own and don't don't take someone else's word for it. Yes. Uh, um, okay. What else? Yeah. So let's say for the more advanced players, uh, let's say um, people who are let's say hmm, it's always difficult for me to. Hmm, to understand the rating difference differences, for example, in the U.S. ratings and the Israeli ratings, because as I understood, they're a bit different from each other. Mildly, um, fifty to a hundred points. Like USEF is inflated by fifty to a hundred points to, compared uh, to Elo, compared to Fide. So. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. So, for example, for players who are about maybe seventeen hundred, sixteen hundred, maybe eighteen hundred, in this kind of. Uh, range of ratings i can say that for me personally i felt like a very good book that helped me understand better uh, chess strategy and ideas like uh, positional sacrifices or uh, dynamics these kind of things which are less i think very difficult for a beginner to grasp um because they are kind of less abstract maybe um than uh, than other things so um I would recommend this book. Okay, I, I've read it uh, in Hebrew originally, but I believe the name of it in English is... Uh, um, what's the name? Like um, Positional Chess Handbook, perhaps? I think it's by Israel Gelfer. Are you familiar with this one? I am not, no. But it's good to get new suggestions, so um, I'll uh, try to track it down. Um, yeah. Positional Chess Handbook. Okay. I... I think that's the name maybe some slightly different order okay uh, I, I, but the author is, is Israeli so I think uh, maybe this is the reason why this book, book is maybe perhaps a, um, is maybe more well known in Israel than it is in some maybe other countries but it's been obviously translated to English in some other languages and I can say that uh, once again it's 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 a good um, it's a good book to understand those more advanced strategy, strategic ideas. Okay, cool. Yeah, and I just fact-checked you, and you do have the name right in English. It's Positional Chess Handbook. So, yeah, right. I'll be sure to put a link to that, and I'll, I'd like to check it out myself. Um, sounds good. And what about, like, your philosophy on doing tactics and stuff like that versus studying endgames? I mean, obviously, you have to be good at everything to, to be 2,500, but how do you think people should budget their time? Right, so... 
Mm, that's a good question. So first of all, um, I think um, I think for a complete beginner or just slightly beginner players, I wouldn't spend so much time on uh, on uh, studying end games. Maybe very very basic end games, of course. <laughs> you know, winning with a queen versus king, so on. Right, right. But you know, starting uh, starting um, to look at some. Um, look at, at some, you know, uh, books about very, okay, slightly more complicated endgames. Might not be very practical because, I mean, first of all, I I, I feel it, it's more important to, to get rid of, you know, the big blunders, the very big mistakes. And the, and so you don't get to see so many endgames as a beginner, I think. Um, but some people would argue with me about this because I know the very acceptable approach for many Soviet Union chess coaches is like, oh no, you should study endgames from day one, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, and I, I'm i not saying they are wrong, that's just my opinion, uh, but, you know, that's, that's just a matter of approach, I guess. And about um, tactics, well, obviously, um, obviously tactics are sacred, right? I mean, uh, to be a uh, to be a great player, you must know how, like spotting, uh, spotting the right moment for a tactic, right? Right. So what, you know, the, the, the only one thing that I don't like so much about um, the, um, let's say, the most, um, um, let's say, the most well-known places to study tactics, you know, like uh, sites like I don't know, maybe Chess Tempo or some just just uh, other chess, even some chess tactic books, that they just, most of them just give you, let's say, a certain position and say, okay, why to play and win, right? Right. But in order to feel the right moment for a tactic in an actual game, it's a bit different, right? It's a huge difference, yeah. It's a huge difference, and... um, That actually happened to Fabiano yesterday, uh, trying to push through a win against uh, um, Lingdiren, he... Ding Liren, sorry. Uh, he, yeah, he missed a win in, like a tactic that was basically white to move and win in three. And it was kind of, uh, wasn't that, it was kind of a counterintuitive move. You had to sack a piece, but, it, you know, if it were presented to him as a tactics puzzle, he would solve it in a second. But, you know, when it's one moment in a game, it's a lot harder to, to track, to spot. Yeah, yeah. So, so here's the thing. I, I, to this day, I didn't, I still didn't came across for example, um, uh, a good book which which kind of deals with with this topic well, like how to exactly spot the right moment for a tactic or for a for some direct attack or whatever. But um, I, I don't want to kind of um, uh, leave the audience without anything. So I, I I would kind of give a small advice on this. So. Uh, Let's say when you play games, whatever it, when uh, whether it's like online or over the board chess. So if if you feel like you you have a bit of struggle to to spot tactics, I think it's it's a very good idea um, during the game to, to to try, let's say more often than not, um, just defining for yourself is this position tactical? Uh, should I search for tactics? Where does my opinion, opponent opponent has some hanging pieces? And even if those things are maybe a lot of times very theoretical, for example, the opponent makes a move, and you see that in some variation you might have a possibility for a fork, for example, which might not work right away, but maybe in some later part in the game it will work. So it's important to grasp, grasp the tactical ideas in mind, kind of have a little maybe... We can call it like a dat- small database of uh, tactical potential tactical ideas in the position, and and then it might be easier to execute them in the right moment because they know they exist. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, just take a little inventory and then uh, keep it in mind and try not to forget. <laughs> yeah, kind of give yourself candidate tactical ideas, and and then when the right time uh, comes. Um, y- y- you can, you are kind of more likely to spot them if you already have the idea or the motif in mind. That makes sense. 
Okay, and Asif, I just have a couple more questions for you, if you don't mind. Yes, of course. Okay. Uh, so, uh, people always like to hear stories. Listeners like to hear stories. So, I don't know if you have any famous stories from your travels or, like, the strongest chess player you ever played or came across or if anything comes to mind uh, with regard to your experiences as an up-and-coming uh, strong young chess player. Yeah, I actually do have uh, some little uh, story which relates to both playing against a very strong player and, uh, you know, being kind of overwhelmed by this. So in the year uh, 2000, and uh, I believe it was 13, so I played uh, in the Isle of Man uh, tournament, uh, which, by the way, in the recent years has become uh, a very strong open tournament, uh, right? So in the last couple of editions we've seen players like um, I mean almost all of the elite players playing there right yeah uh, but when I when I played there it was it, it was already a strong tournament but not let's say as strong as it was in the last couple of years and in one of the rounds I am um, so um, I've seen the the pairings for the next day and um, I'm you know just searching my name and suddenly, you know, I I I saw that I I was being uh, paired against a grandmaster, Michael Adams. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So, um, okay. So for those who don't know, maybe uh, Michael Adams. I think at 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 this moment of recording is um, maybe not already in the top ten players in the world. Uh, but I think at, at, at his peak, he was somewhere around number three, maybe even number two. I'm not sure in the world. Uh, oh, very, very strong player. Uh, but not only a very strong player, uh, he's a player who is extremely well known for his kind of coolness and very kind of ability to be e- extremely calm in every kind of situation. And... When I played against him, uh, I was r- really not only amazed by this. So after the game, I obviously lost. I was um, it was an interesting game, but I, I lost eventually. And um, and after the game, in the post mortem analysis, so first of all, after the game, he, he was like a very big hero for me, a very well known player. I was very happy to make to analyze the game with him a bit, and I kind of very kind of humbly said, uh, uh, sorry, Michael, do, do you want maybe to <laughs> to analyze the game a bit? I, I was kind of expecting him to say, uh, no, come on, I have some dinner or something. Uh, but no, he actually accepted, and uh, we went to the analyze room. And actually, in um, I, I kind of had the imagine in my head that probably I didn't, um, I didn't see a lot of variations that he did see in the game and that's why I lost, right? It's kind of that's what you think when you play against such a strong player. Uh, but, but actually, I was kind of amazed to to see the, how, let's say, his intuition. M- many times, I would I would ask him in the post mortem analysis, like for example, yeah, I was considering playing this, and then I would show him some variation that I calculated, and he was like. No, I didn't even consider this move. I don't think it's good, something like that. And I was like, ah, come on, that's a serious move. No, I mean, that's a sensible move. And um, it's not like he was trying to be um, kind of cocky or anything. He just, his intuition, he counts on his intuition so strongly. And his intuition is amazing that many times he's not even calculating so deeply many variations. He kind of knows exactly which kind of uh, moves are important and which moves are not important and I, I guess um, th- this was very remarkable remarkable for me somebody who is calculating a lot uh, and, and him just very calmly you know uh, not calculating too much and still managing to find the best moves and you know after checking the game afterwards even with the engine many times his moves were right, even though he didn't calculate them maybe even properly, but they were still right because he felt they were like the best moves. And this was quite an amazing experience uh, for me, definitely. Wow, that's that's an awesome story. I mean, there's, there's so much to unpack from that. I mean, first of all, Mickey Adams, you're not the first guest who has come on and said, you know, basically lavished him with praise, both, both for his... Uh, 
his decorum, the way he handles himself. And I think he in particular is known for having uh, an, an intuitive chess style. Um, and it's also interesting what you said about asking him to analyze because we've had different you know, people suggest different things about if you're playing a stronger player, like, should you ask them to analyze or do you need to, to, do they need to offer? Like, you know, do you have an, I guess we know your opinion on that, but were you nervous in asking him that? Well, I wouldn't say nervous, but I was, once again, I mentioned earlier, a a, a bit of a shy person and uh, I kind of felt like, um, I felt like the little man, you know, asking the the big man for some right. for some advice or something. But I, I wouldn't say I felt nervous. But I I, I actually don't see a, a reason why it would be uh, I don't know impolite or not like a, what's the problem with um, offering your opponent to analyze. I mean, if if a weaker opponent would ask me to analyze. Um, I, I don't I, personally. I, I wouldn't mind um, analyzing and um, helping him. You know, maybe, w- maybe just because that's just an opinion, of course. But m- maybe that's just because um, in in my nature, maybe I like to explain things and help people uh, improve or something. So uh, I kind of feel the experience of analyzing with a weaker opponent kind of fun for me also. Uh, but yeah, I'm I actually. Uh, I didn't even know that some people have uh, issues uh, with that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. And certainly if you can't, if someone, if you're the stronger player and someone asks you to analyze, you know, it's okay to say no without being offended. Like, it's good that generally we want people to want to improve at chess and to to continue to have uh, strong interest in the game. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I don't think it's bad to ask, but I have heard some people say that. Um, so I was just curious. Yeah. Okay, so just two more, Asif. Yeah. Uh, number one, what do you, you like? You mentioned you've had a girlfriend for a couple of years. What else do you do? What, what are you interested in besides chess? Um, what do you do for fun? Yeah. So, um, well, w- one of my uh, biggest uh, actually interests and 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 love, uh, let's say, uh, is uh, is actually music. Um, I am myself as a hobby. Uh, I play drums. I try to play some. Under uh, other instruments as well, but not <laughs> not as successfully. I would say that if I need to compare my let's say drumming abilities to a chess rating, I would say that maybe I'm I don't know like 1700, 1800 at, at drumming. Okay, um, not bad. Not bad. Like yeah. um, I, I I you know I I. I I could fill up for some for some ACDC um, ah, nice. uh, show. I, I don't know. Oh, just because uh, it's so easy, kind of. But uh, right. but um, I, I love uh, music quite a lot. Almost every almost every uh, genre of music that you throw at me. Uh, but sp- I mean, let's say more uh, more musical musics. I mean, I I don't like uh, so much like electronic or um, you know. I don't like so much, uh, you know, modern pop music. I, I would listen to um, to rock music, even heavy metal music or classical music. What, what, um, you know, whichever music that make me feel like uh, the other, like the musician made a good effort of making good music, very sophisticated music, let's say, or something like that. Nice. Uh, yeah, so that's um, that's one big interest that I have. Um, okay, I I like uh, like sports very much. I I even have uh, tickets actually for the for the World uh, Cup in uh, in in Russia actually. In oh Moscow. wow, awesome! Uh, for who the gonna, who are you going to be rooting for? Oh, uh, that's like the half final game. So uh, I still don't know who is playing. But like this, overall, who oh, do you want oh, to overall, win? Overall, oh. Uh, yeah, you know that's that's a difficult question. Uh, I, I I I kind of I I never had I don't know why exactly, but I I never was a very much big fan of any team or any any you know um, of any particular um, kind of um, state. I just you know come to see good good uh, good matches and um, you know just uh, let it be any team who wins. It's fine with me. Nice. Yeah. Um, cool. Okay. And uh, last thing, I just wanted to circle back to see if you've thought of any bad chess advice yet. Yeah. So throughout throughout this interview, I'm kind of trying to run in my head because it's a good question because 
let's say that um, I'm I'm not sure that uh, if this is uh, the answer people are looking for, but this is something very much, uh, let's say, from the heart. Uh, so um, I, I would see many times um, uh, players making mistakes in some positions just because, and let's say I would ask people or students, okay, why would you make this move? It's it's obviously bad or it's obviously not good. And he would say, even think like, I, I know, I, I felt it's not good or I knew it's bad, but... I've heard some grandmaster saying that in such position you should play this. Um, so basically, many players have this tendency to have, be very, let's say, close-minded or narrow-minded. I'm not sure, exactly sure how to say it. To be very much fixed on a certain idea that, for example, uh, double pawns are always bad, for example. Uh, or that isolated pawns are always bad or always good. And I, I would say that um, a, a bad advice would be to um, to let people think that um, a certain principle or, or a, se- a certain rule or a certain idea is, is, is always true or you can always you can always implement it. So I would maybe the, the best suggestion I can give on this that even if you, uh, read some idea or some um, I don't know some motifs some some uh, opening move you should always kind of think on your own and try to understand whether it's really is the case in that specific position because chess at, at the end of the day is a very specific game I think you would agree with me it's it's there are like countless uh, amount of positions and it cannot be fixed um on, on certain ideas in your mind. You have to be kind of very open-minded on your decisions. Yeah, for sure. We've, uh, we've explored this topic in the, on the podcast uh, from both angles because uh, I am John Watson. It's, he kind of had a – his writing has that overarching theme that uh, at the top levels you have to unlearn all of the sort of heuristics and shortcuts you've learned at the lower levels. But at the yes. same time, we're we're wired to want to know rules of thumb. Just because it's such a rich and complicated game, it's like it feels to someone fairly new to the game, it can be overwhelming. So you really want to have uh, you you want to have shortcuts in mind and sayings in mind. So it's it can be very tricky to find the right balance. That's 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 true. This is why I say that you know all of those principles or guidelines. I mean, maybe if you take it statistically are probably right maybe 80% of the time, maybe 90, I'm not sure. But there is always the exceptions. And uh, this is why uh, keeping open mind is extremely important, I believe. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so Asif, I think that's all for questions. Uh, Are you on social media at all? What is the best way for people to reach out to you if they would like to do so? Um, well, I, I, I actually improved <laughs> on this uh, on this uh, aspect uh, than I previously was. Um, I'm now I, I used to be kind of on Facebook and, and uh, this kind of things, but now I do have uh, okay, obviously email, Instagram, um, Facebook, and oh, okay, obviously the YouTube channel itself uh, kind of presents uh, the option of uh, contacting me, and also. Um, also, many people uh, contact me through chess sites such as LeeChess or Chess.com. I just have a profile there, so you can also send me a message on uh, these uh, sites if you if if it's uh, comfortable uh, for you for them. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So not hard to track down, and I'll I'll link to your YouTube page in the show description. Um, and yeah, I think our listeners will have enjoyed this and. Um, Hopefully, uh, if anyone's interested in coaching, they can give you a shout or at minimum, check out your YouTube channel. Uh, before I end this interview, uh, this is awesome. Uh, I apologize. Yeah. This is just to let the audience know that I forgot to mention it at the beginning that I'm hoping to be back on schedule with the podcast on Tuesday, but there's still a lot going on with my move. So I apologize in advance. Uh, I, there might be some disruptions for one more week, but I have plenty of guests to schedule. So I would say within two weeks, it's going to be business as usual, and I'll do my best to get something out on Tuesday 
of next week. So anyway, I just want to say that before I forgot to because I forgot to mention it. But uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, Asif, thank you so much. This was awesome. This was really good. Um, yeah, th- thank you too, Ben. It's, uh, it was a great uh, great experience, and I, I really really wanted to, to thank you for what you are doing. I actually uh, I actually think um, that this kind of um, uh, talks with uh, all kinds of uh, chess players and personalities uh, is it, it, really a very kind of it, it's a great way I think for people to kind of uh, reach out for the uh, for those um, for those very interesting figures in the in the chess world so really thank you for what you're doing yeah my pleasure I mean hopefully you know everyone feels like they know each other a little bit more like even from watching your youtube videos they see that you're enthusiastic about chess and obviously you know your stuff but now i mean people know a bit more about your personality so that's that's the goal uh and i'm i hope it's uh i hope it's happening to some extent um okay well thanks a lot really appreciate it thank you too ben have a have a nice uh, and easy uh, moving to your new place oh man hopefully it gets easier because <laughs> this, <laughs> this has been brutal <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> i can imagine okay thank you yeah thank you ben thanks to everyone who supports perpetual chess i spend about five hours a week on each episode and even though i love doing the show it can be hard to find the time without the financial support of the chess community perpetual chess would not be possible Special shout out goes to my Patreon and PayPal Perpetual Partners, and I have finally updated the list. You guys are Adam Vrancoulge, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Chad Hilton, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Wood, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Gary Andrews, Greg Shahadi, James Bonastasia, Jason Dunbar, Jeffrey Martello, Jen Shahadi, Jennifer Valens, Jen Scream, John Fernandez, Johnny McMenamin, Kelly Palmer, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Lorraine Dore, Macaulay Peterson, Matthew Tedesco, Pascal Charbonneau, Paul Sweeney, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Ricky Grijalva, Rob Lazorchek, Tatia Vabrahamian, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotella, Victor Vrankulj, Zhao Cheng, Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks a lot, guys. I'll catch you guys next week with another episode. Podcast Network.